Welcome to the Don't Pick the Scab podcast with the premise of connecting men over 40 with the tools and community to thrive in their divorce recovery either before, during, or after a divorce. Welcome everybody out there to Don't Pick the Scab podcast with David and Ed, Ed Dobby. And he's going to talk about anger management, emotion management. Ed is uh, termed the emotions doctor, a psychologist, and a best-selling author. One book, Emotions as Tools, a self-help guide to controlling your life, not your feelings. And another book, Beyond Anger Management, Master Your Anger as a Strategic Tool. Let's start with the podcast with the family origins and voting emotions. That's that's where we're headed before the podcast. We'll go ahead and get started. Okay. You asked me how I got into this whole area of emotions. And it's a really interesting story. I grew up in a family that didn't deal well with emotions. <clears throat> there was no abuse or anything, but I remember specifically my dad got very angry with my sister, who's four years older than I am, and he was chasing her around the downstairs of our house carrying a slab of meat. He never caught her, and I don't know what he would have done if he had, but he never did. So that was kind of an s- overview of, of how our family dealt with emotions. So I get into graduate school, <clears throat> and I'm I finished all all of, of my coursework, and I was doing an internship in San Francisco, and I decided I wanted to learn about how to deal with men and women who had drug abuse problems because I didn't I didn't use drugs it was not an issue, so my a neighbor of my dad's in San Francisco was the director of the Henry Olaf House, which was a drug treatment program. Mm-hmm. So I go up to this guy and I say to him, look, I'm a, a graduate in psychology. I'm about ready to have my PhD. And I'd really like to sit in on your group to learn how to, to do what you do. Is that okay? And he looked at me and he said, no. I said, what do you mean? No. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you cannot sit in, but what you can do is you can join the group as a participant observer. And I thought, well, this is a piece of cake. I'm a PhD graduate. Clinical psychologist, no problem. David, it took these folks six months in order to make me realize that I didn't deal well with emotions. They called me a non-drinking alcoholic. What is that? I remember saying that. What exactly is that? What exactly is it is when you're an alcoholic, you cover over your feelings with drugs and alcohol. For me, I covered over my feelings the same way they did. But my mechanism was to get into my academics. Okay. So I was a non-drinking alcoholic. So it took him six months to help me to realize that. Based on that group, I realized I had to do more uh, to understand and deal with emotions. So I graduate, and I get into an internship, and I'm dealing in a, a Napa State Hospital. So I have to help these people learn how to deal with their feelings, and I did that. And so then I got out and I went to my first job, which was with the California Youth Authority. It was my only job I'd ever had. I stayed with them for 32 years. And I'm dealing with young women, all of whom have committed serious crimes in California, and many of whom have dealt with their feelings by either hurting others or hurting themselves. In addition to that, I had five young women who had killed their children on my caseload. Never in graduate school had I encountered that kind of issue. And I also had to deal with, with jaded correctional staff. Now, the, the young women didn't want to deal with their feelings because they were messy. 
the staff didn't want to deal with the feelings of these young women because, again, they were messy and they didn't want to deal with emotions. So I came up with the metaphor of emotions as tools, which enabled me to talk to my young women and men, by the way, mostly women, because they understood the concept of tools, whether it was a cell phone or it was a remote control. And I then would help them understand that your emotions are going to affect you. And if you don't learn how to master them and enable and and help you learn from and utilize the emotions as they are supposed to be utilized, you're going to do things you don't want to do, like hurting others or hurting yourself. With the jaded correctional staff, they understood handcuffs, they understood mace, they understood batons. So I could say to them, you are going to face emotions and you're going to have to learn how to master them. You approach mastering emotions the same way you approach learning how to master using a handcuff or a baton. You understand the tool. You understand the function of the tool. You understand how the tool works. And then you utilize it to further your own goals. So that was how the emotions as tools model came about. Mm -hmm. So then after 32 years, I retired, about 17 years now. And when I got out, I began to look around and realize that in our society, we are woefully inadequate in teaching others how to deal with emotions. So you get into things like you see on the news. The celebrity beats up his girlfriend and says, I didn't do it. My anger made me do it. No, the anger didn't make you do it. You chose to do it. The anger facilitated it. So when I realized that there was a gap in terms of understanding what emotions are, I wrote my first book, Emotions as Tools. So, and after that came out, a few years later, I decided I really need to address anger. And that's where the second book came out. And then since I I wrote the two books, I've been doing podcasts to further educate people as to what emotions are, where they come from, the emotion cycle, and all of that, probably most of which we'll talk about today. How does that work where you say anger is a secondary emotion? Yes. That's a myth, David. And here's where it comes from. Secondary emotions are emotions that we express, which cover over the emotions that we actually feel, which are the primary emotions. Now, there are five primary emotions. They're mad, sad, glad, disgust, and surprise. So what tends to happen is this. When men feel an emotion such as anxiety, which is a future-based emotion, the message of which says there's a, there may be a threat out there and the threat may hurt me. Men do not feel comfortable with the emotions of anxiety and they don't feel comfortable with the emotions of hurt or guilt. So what they do, because emotions like anxiety and mm-hmm. hurt and guilt do not feel good and men don't know how to deal with them. So what they do is they express anger, which is an empowering emotion. The message of anger is there's a threat out there, and that threat may kill me. Anger prepares me for war. So we as men, excuse me, are comfortable with anger. So I'd rather be angry at you and show my anger than say to you, I'm really nervous about this situation, or I'm hurt in this situation, or I'm feeling guilty because that's perceived by men as weakness. It isn't when you know how to master those emotions, but men don't, so we get angry, because we feel powerful when we get angry. So that's anger is a secondary emotion. 
So what are some of the ways that men over 40 divorcing can master, you know, some of the general ways? Okay. Let me take a step back a minute here and and explain the emotion cycle and how emotions work. We are constantly, all of us, scanning our environment for threat. When we perceive threat, the amygdala puts us into fight or flight and prepares us to deal with the threat. And that is a subconscious, very fast reaction. We have no control over that. And because we don't control the initial reaction to the perceived threat, the myth has come about that our emotions control us. When we were cave people, they basically did, and that was fine because every threat was going to kill us. But now we have developed the thinking part of our brain, which is the cerebral cortex, and we we now have the ability to take a look at what the initial reaction is, take a deep breath, which then lowers our arousal level, and then assess what's going on. And so we can ask the question, what's the nature of the threat? How real is it? What do I need to do about it? And then we can choose what action we want to take. That's where mastery comes in. The concept of management, as in anger management, that only applies, and this is where it's a misunderstanding, by the way, because most anger management groups will teach you how to control, how to, to suppress the anger, and that's fine for a first step. But they don't teach you how to master the anger, which is to utilize it to make decisions which will improve your own life and your relationship with others. That's the emotion cycle. Does that, does that make sense so far? It does. It does, yes. Okay. Now, for men, in terms of a divorce, there are a number of issues. And I'm no expert on divorce, by the way. I have a little bit of knowledge about it that I've acquired over the years. But the concepts are, are, are familiar. So when you get into a situation and you're divorced, what kinds of issues are coming up? All right, there's anger, certainly. There's anger at the spouse for whatever the spouse did. There's perhaps some guilt for perhaps what I as a man may have contributed to the divorce. There's anxiety about what the future is going to hold because I don't know and I don't control it. So just you take a look at all of it, at anger, anxiety, and guilt, and that's a, a combination of emotions that if you don't know how to deal with, they're going to blow you away. So it's almost like you're not mastering the emotion, you're controlling them. Yes, and that's problematic because you can only control them for so long before you're going to begin to make negative, make decisions and act out negatively based on the feelings that you have. So what's the next step then? The next step then is to understand what anger, anxiety, and guilt mean, and then to, to take a look at those threats. So with anger. Anger says there's a threat out there, and I can and I can go to war and, and eliminate the threat. So when you're angry, you have to say, what actually is going on? Is there a threat that I need to go to battle over, go to war with? And there may or there may not be. It may be just you're, you're angry. You're angry because of what she's done, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then you have to decide, what am I going to do with that anger in order to move the process forward. Am I going to beat up my, my spouse? No, that's not a good suggestion. Am I going to take a look at what the issues are in the divorce and maybe use my anger to bring about a, a good solution to what's happening to me? That's okay too. 
But let's take a look at the next emotion of anxiety. Anxiety, the message is there may be a threat out there and I may, and that threat may hurt me. So anxiety tells you, you now have to step back, take a deep breath, take a step back from the situation and say, what is the possible threat and what actions do I need to take to mitigate that threat? As an example, my students get anxious when I give them, I'm going to give them an exam. So what do they do? Well, the good students say, I'm going to use my anxiety to motivate me to study. The bad ones say, oh, there's a test out there and I'm not going to do well. I'm so screwed and they don't do anything and fail the test. So when your men feel anxious, they need to use that emotion and the energy of that emotion to say, I need to analyze the nature of the threat and what actions I need to take to mitigate that threat. That's how you master the emotion. You don't control it. You don't deny it. You look at the message and you utilize the energy of that emotion to motivate action or be or motivate behavior. Now let's take a look at guilt. The message of guilt is I may have done something wrong. So in that case, you use the guilt to say, okay, what have I done in this situation which may have contributed to the divorce? That's a tough question for men to ask. But when you ask it, it focuses your attention on what you need to do. Because maybe there was something that you as a man did which contributed to that. And if that's the case and you take re- responsibility for that, now then, when you go into the vo- divorce proceedings, you may be able to create a situation where the animosity is reduced and you can come to a mutually agreed upon divorce decision which works for you and for her. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So basically, you take a pause and you analyze and weigh your options. Yes, exactly. Now, taking a pause is really important because your men need to learn for every emotion. And you might say, well, why do I want to take a deep breath and take a step back when I'm happy? No, you don't need to, but you're learning a new habit. And the habit is when I feel an emotion, I take a deep breath and I take a physical step back from the situation, which then lowers my arousal and gives me some distance in order to be able to assess what's going on. It's a very cognitive-oriented approach, David, in the sense that you're feeling the emotion and you're using your brain to make a decision about which action you're going to take, which is going to improve your life and work for you and improve your relationships, rather than saying, I feel it, I'm going to act on it. That's when they're going to make bad decisions lead to bad outcomes. Definitely. Let's switch gears a little bit here. In your email to me, you were talking about a different definition of suicide. And I actually like that definition. It it does make sense. Can you speak to that? I can. When I was working at the Youth Authority, I I wrote the the policy for the the state for suicide intervention. Um, And The issue with suicide is most people think that I want to commit suicide because I want to die. That isn't usually the case. It's it's counterintuitive. If I'm going to kill myself, I want to die. No. Suicide in most cases is looked at as a option for making the pain go away. I don't want to die because I may not even understand what it means to die, but I want the pain to end. And the only option that I see available to me is to take my own life. Now, if you understand that, 
The intervention is, how then can I help the person make the pain go away? I remember specifically, I had a, a, a young woman I was dealing with, and she came into my session and she said, you know, Dr. Dobby, I, I want to I wanna kill myself because I, I just, I can't do anything right. And I said to her, well, well, what do you mean you can't do anything right? Every time I make a decision, it just all turns to shit. I said, well, did you make the decision to get out of bed this morning? Yes. Well, isn't that a good decision? Yeah, but I had no choice. Yes, you did. You could have stayed in bed. Did you make a decision to come down and see me? Well, yes, but I had no choice there either. They would have forced me. No, no one forced you to. The point was when I helped her realize that she could make a decision and she could make an effective decision, that she had options. And as long as you have options, you then don't have to, to you then have a choice to have in, impact your life and you don't have to think about committing suicide which ends it all. So the first point was to help her understand that she can make decisions, and then we could go about addressing the source of her pain. So if you look at suicide as an attempt to eliminate the pain rather than to eliminate your life, now it gives you a, a, a way to make an intervention. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And how does the role of hope interplay with that also? Because that's moved in there too. Yeah. Exactly. So what is hope? Hope says that there may be a possibility of a change in the future. Okay, so what can lead to a change in the future? You making a decision which going is going to impact your life. So if I can make one decision to get out of bed, I now have the possibility that I can make other decisions, small at first, larger as we go on, which then can impact my life, which then leads to hope. So small wins small wins because the small wins tell you that you can have an impact. If I feel I can't impact my life, then I have no hope and that's understandable. But if I can make an impact, then there's a possibility of change and the possibility of change leads to the possibility of hope. And then another term that that's kind of close to that, you say we need to redefine the word failure. Absolutely. That's a biggie. Failure is defined as a lack of success. And unfortunately, that's a really inadequate definition. If you take a look, if if I go on a trip and I'm going to drive from where I live in Oxnard to Santa Barbara, which is 50 miles north of here. So I get in my car and for some reason I don't make it to Santa Barbara. Either there's a, a road is out or whatever it happens to be. And I end up maybe 25 miles away instead of 50. Have I failed? No, I just didn't get to my destination. So when you look at failure, I redefine failure as falling down and getting back up. I'm reading a a book now, which is really interesting. It's about this woman who does work with uh, major corporations and so forth and how to define failure. And she tells a story. Have you ever used a post-it note? Yep. Okay. Well, that was developed by a scientist at 3M who was setting out to develop a particular kind of adhesive. And when he put this together, he found out that his adhesive didn't work. It didn't meet his initial goals. 
But what he had developed was the adhesive that works with post-it notes. So he looked at what he had and how he could utilize it. Another example, that's probably not the best one. This will be a little bit better. They looked at um, Edison. And Edison was asked, how does it feel, sir, to fail to develop a light bulb? You did. You had 10,000 failures. He said, no, I found 10,000 ways that it wouldn't work. So if you understand that we as human beings are fallible and we are going to fall short of our goals, if you define failure as learning how things don't work and you get back up from when you fall down, you're mm-hmm. going to get to your goal. So failure is not the lack of success. It's finding out what doesn't work. My take on it is um, after I got divorced, I had a pretty prolific dating period. And Mm -hmm. um, to look back on all those women I dated and it it never went anywhere, that actually showed me what I didn't want and what I did want. So they honed my dating world into the point where I got married last September. So there were stepping stones to get to that point, even though they didn't uh, go anywhere. Exactly. Same thing, yeah. That's perfect, David. That's an excellent example of, of looking at failure. Things didn't go well, you found out what didn't work, and then you eventually ended up finding out what did. Something that's near and dear to my heart is a co-parenting. Uh, when I did co-parenting, my divorce was very contentious, and uh, I tried my best not to get the kids involved, to get their emotions going. But invariably, couples just use the kids as pawns, as weapons. And how can you speak to that and maybe get a guy over 40 not to do that? Because all that does is screw them up, basically. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good question. How old are the kids? Well, my kids are grown now, but I'm talking like kids. Uh, when I did my divorce, my kids were elementary school, junior high, and high school. Okay. So they were pretty impressionable. Exactly. When you're dealing with, with kids, it's important to first validate the idea that they're going to have emotions. There's going to be a lot of hurt, and there's going to be a lot of anger, and there's going to be a lot of nervousness or anxiety. When you validate the emotions, you give them permission to feel whatever it is that they're feeling. Because if you don't, then not only are they going to feel it, but they're going to be confused about the feeling, feelings. There's a tendency for kids to blame themselves in the divorce. Yep. And all of that has to be acknowledged. The challenge when you're co-parenting is you don't control the other parent. You have no... Nothing you can say is going to do that. But what men who are co-parenting need to understand is they can, as I say, validate the emotions, say, tell me what you feel as best you can. What you're probably going to feel as you're explaining it to your kids, you're probably going to be angry. You're mm-hmm. probably going to be nervous. You may feel like it's your fault. And then address that. It's understandable that you're angry because mom and dad are, are breaking up. It's understanding. Uh, understandable that you're going to be nervous about the future because we can't predict what's going to happen and things are going to change. It's understandable that you may feel it's your fault, but it's not. You kind of get the gist of where I'm going with this. Oh, for sure. Yep. Okay. So when you explain all that to your kids, then you may have to explain, you know, mom or dad, depending on what it is, mom has a different view of what's going on here. 
mom is very angry. And mom may say things to you or about me that just don't seem to make sense to you. That's mom's way of looking at the situation. Now, I'm not going to put mom down because that puts the, puts the kids in an untenable situation where they have to choose. Yep. I don't want to do that with my kids if I'm, if I'm co-parenting. Now, the mom may, and you, again, you can't control that, but you can, the idea here is to inoculate the kids. Inoculation in the sense, David, that when we get a booster shot, we're inoculating ourselves against COVID, for example. So when I come in contact with COVID, I've got the shot. I am now prepared to deal with COVID so that it doesn't infect me. So you are inoculating the kids to be able to deal with mom and whatever mom is saying to them. And they need to understand that they can talk to you about anything without you judging or putting mom down. Now what you've done is you've created a safe environment, a psychological safe environment for them to be able to talk about, address, and understand the emotions and be able to deal with mom with whatever mom throws at them. Does that make sense? Yes. And it's almost like when you inoculate them, you're not having them choose between the two. You know, no. just leave like it pretty much open. You know, that's that's mom's view. This is my view. They both can coexist and let's keep it moving. Exactly. Because when you attempt to to create a, a barrier or put mom down, the kids don't want to make that decision. They love mom. They love you. So you don't put them in that position where they have to make a choice. You're not putting mom down, although you'd like to. And it's understandable. You're not putting her down. And you're not agreeing with her, but you're explaining that this is mom's point of view. Okay. What are some of the positive coping mechanisms that men over 40 can enlist? Uh, You know, we talk about, you know, staying busy, going to the gym. What are some of the things that you've seen that people have done in terms of coping mechanisms? Okay. Those are are good mechanisms, going to the gym and all that. But to the extent that they distract you from dealing with the emotion, they're not necessarily healthy in the long run. They're healthy in the short run. I don't have to think about this, and that's fine. If you have to to go to work and, and you're totally discombobulated by the emotion, then yeah, distract yourself, put the emotion aside, put it on the back burner, and come back to it later. But ultimately, you want to be able to deal with the emotion directly. You want to be able to say, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm anxious. And what decisions do I need to make about those emotions, which will help me cope going forward? So if you're doing that, then now you're you're taking effective action based on the emotion. Then you can then if you want to go to the gym and you want to do that because you need to be momentarily distracted i have no problem with it but you need to master that emotion and divorce will tear you up because there's so much going on so what i suggest is when i was was talking to folks about dealing with emotions i would say you may have to schedule it and what i mean by that is this if i have an appointment with a doctor or a dentist i schedule that and i put it on my calendar Right? Okay. Oh, so now, yeah. if, exactly. Now, if I'm dealing with guilt, 
what I may do is I may say, I'm going to put a guilt hour on my calendar. And when I'm alone and after dinner or whatever, instead of turning the TV on, I'm going to focus on my guilt and my anger and my anxiety. Now, when you do that, you know, if, if you've got it on the calendar, you don't have to think about it anymore. Correct. If I've got an appointment with, with you as my, as my dentist, I'm not, and I'm at work, I'm not thinking about you. You're on my calendar. You're, you're set. So when I'm at work, I'm not going to deal with the anger. I'm going to put it out aside and those feelings, and I'm going to focus on what I need to do. Now, when it comes up at eight o'clock, it's on my calendar. Now I'm going to put everything else aside and I'm going to deal with those feelings. It's a coping mechanism that enables you to deny, if you will, or suppress the emotions when you have to. And it's appropriate because you're going to come back to them later on. So it's almost like a pause. It is, but it's two things. Temporary pause. It's a pause, temporary pause, because you need that, because you don't want to be totally wiped out by all these emotions. But it's not denying the emotions totally. It's putting them on the calendar for an hour or so or whatever for you to deal with the emotions, either with yourself in a therapy group, whatever it happens to be. The, The issue is if you're denying your emotions all the time or you're getting angry as a secondary emotion, you're not dealing with those feelings. Mm-hmm. And they'll come back to haunt you. Wow. <clears throat> Part of forgiveness, as you correctly pointed out, is letting go. But part of letting go is changing the way your men identify themselves. And it's the difference between being divorced and being single. Okay. And let me explain it. I had a, a boss who was divorced, and I forget what the context was, but I walked into her office one day and I said, I said, tell me something are you divorced or are you single? And she said, I'm divorced. And I said, no, you're not. You're single. And here's the difference. Being divorced is a legal term. You are, in fact, always divorced, mm-hmm. meaning that the marriage has been uh, eliminated. But if you identify yourself as divorced, you're still attached to the ex. Once that marriage has been legally separated, you are now single. And when you're single, of course, everything's involved. That You can date, you can do whatever you want to be. There's no mm-hmm. longer an attachment with the, the ex. But it's an identification. If I'm divorced, I'm still focused on the fact that the marriage is important in my life. If I'm single, I'm free. But it goes along with and, and is the next step to following up on forgiveness. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So if you have one thing to convey to my listeners and viewers, what would be the one thing? Everything you say is important, but if you had one thing to tell them, what would it be? All right. This is going to sound self-serving, but it's not. I would suggest they go to the emotionsdoctor.com. It's a free, it's my free blog. And go up to the index tab on the upper left-hand corner of the, the homepage. Pull it down. And you'll get a listing of categories. Now, I suggest if anger is the issue for them, then they read everything they can about anger and educate themselves. If anxiety is the issue, they can go to other emotions and learn about Mm -hmm. anxiety. What I'm saying here is I want your listeners to educate themselves as to what emotions are so that now they have the ability to master those emotions instead of feeling controlled by them. 
that would be my my one suggestion. Educate yourself. Learn about what emotions are. Learn about the emotion cycle. Learn about how, how your emotions affect you. Because when you do that, if you don't mind, David, I'll talk directly to your listeners. Go ahead. When you do that, you now are empowering yourself to deal with the emotions rather than feeling inadequate and weak and controlled by the emotions, which are going to be there. So you might as well learn how to master them and make them work for you instead of feeling that they work against you, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Well, we want to thank Ed for taking time out today. Man, I, man, I got to go to this website. Where were you 12 years ago? Come on. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, why don't you tell us about where you're located on the internet and all your connections. Plus, we'll have the connections on the bottom of the show notes too, but let the viewers know where you are. Okay. I don't have a big internet presence. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm at the emotions and let me spell it out for it's T-H-E-E-M-O-T-I-O-N-S-D-O-C-T-O-R.com. And um, that's basically it. I don't do a whole lot on Facebook. I have a, a, a Facebook page, but I, I don't do a whole lot with it, but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and then there's my blog. And the best way to go is the blog. And if you want to go to Amazon and buy my books, that's great too. And I appreciate it and all, but the website's free. There you go. All right, Ed, we want to thank you for taking time out from sunny California and cold Colorado, but that's okay. But thank you for your time, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. It's been, it's, I've enjoyed it, and I hope it's been helpful to your viewers. All right, have a good day. All right, bye-bye now. Bye-bye.